What's, what's most important really to understand about my story is it isn't my story. It's a story of grace. The part, the part that's mine is just the plot. We all have our own life dramas. None of us matches anybody else. Every single one of us has our own life, life drama. The set of our dramas are different. The scripts of our dramas different. The costumes of our dramas different. Everything about each of our life dramas is different. And so, so aspects of the, the plot and the script and that stuff, yes, of course, they're, they're my drama compared to your drama. But in terms of really what makes the story special compared to not just any other random person's drama is grace. Now, grace is there for everyone. That also isn't unique. But for me, that which makes the story so special is the way that grace came. And much like the story of Ganga when she first came out of heaven and she swept away all of the priests on the banks of the riverbed who were doing their pujas and doing their fire ceremonies and was so, so rambunctious that Lord Shiva had to, had to agree to hold her in his hair and let her out slowly. In the same way for me, that river of grace came through my life and pretty much swept away anything else that was taking place at the same time. I didn't have Lord Shiva there to say, oh, don't worry, I'll hold this for you and let it out very slowly. I, I came here, as many of you know, now almost 23 years ago. At the age of 25, I had... had graduated undergraduate from Stanford in psychology. I was doing a PhD in psychology. And I didn't come as, as embarrassing as it is to admit so many decades later, I didn't come looking for spiritual awakening on any kind of a conscious level. In retrospect, I would love to have one of those stories that goes, you know, I had always prayed to God to show me a deeper path, a higher path. I had, I had prayed to God to awaken me and enlighten me. And so finally God brought me to India. I would love to have a story like that, but I don't. That maybe is somebody else's drama. My, my drama was I didn't even know there was anything to pray for nor did I have any connection with the divine in a way that would have led me to pray. 
I came to India with a backpack. I came on a semester off of a PhD program to travel. In Delhi, I opened up a big, thick, lonely planet guidebook. There was not Google at the time. We had email. Stanford, even when I was an undergrad, had set up email by that time. And my roommate, I remember, used to go to this big, big room in the middle of campus and check this funny thing called email. And I remember thinking, and why bother? Like, you're going to see the same people you're sending messages to in class. Why in the world? And I remember thinking at that time, this email thing isn't going anywhere. You know, what a waste of time. Why would you leave a message on a computer when you could go and actually hand somebody a message in their hands? But anyway, so email existed. The, the web as we know it didn't exist. And so there wasn't a way to just go on Google and say, India, where should we go? So we had a Lonely Planet guidebook, and I opened it in Delhi, and it said, Rishikesh. I was a yoga student already. I used to drive up from Palo Alto to San Francisco to study yoga. I was always an outdoors person. Nature for me was and still is the, the easiest way to connect with God. I wouldn't have used those words before, but I was always someone who would run to the redwoods, would run into the mountains, would run into nature at every opportunity. And so Rishikesh was a place of a river and mountains and yoga. And I mean, I didn't know that Ganga was holy. I didn't know the Himalayas were holy. I just knew river, mountains yoga, relatively close to Delhi, an easy place to start a tour of India. And I got to Ganga. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of other chapters to the drama in the middle, but I got, got to Ganga right here at Parmarth's God. I didn't know Parmarth. I didn't know anything. It just happened to be by divine synchronicity where I ended up. And I got, got to the banks of Ganga, hot, tired, planning to just stick my feet in the river and freshen up. And, and I got to the river and I, I stood there. And as I looked out over, over this river, I was given an experience that I had no framework in which to understand it. But thankfully, it didn't matter because it was so powerful that it just blew every intellectual capacity I had for understanding out of the water anyway. So even if I had had a framework to understand it, there was no part of me left to be doing any understanding. And. It was an experience that was, it was visual, it was physiological on every aspect of me, and it knocked me literally to the ground, and I burst into tears. Tears of not sadness, not joy, but tears of just the truth. 
tears of being in the presence of the truth. And I knew in that moment, I mean, and it had been 30 seconds since I got there. I knew in that moment that this is where I was meant to be. And in that moment, nothing else mattered. You know, we talk so much about non-attachment, about veragya, and sadhana, and tapasya, and all of, all of these very heavy-sounding, process-laden words. And for me, it really was just grace. It was in that moment, nothing else mattered. It wasn't that I didn't care. It wasn't that I didn't love my family, love my loved ones, love my things, love my PhD program, love my goals. It wasn't, it wasn't that. It was just that they, it didn't really matter. The only thing that mattered was staying here. It was like everything else in my entire life, everyone I knew, Everything I knew, everything I owned, every goal I ever had had was here on the one hand. And staying here was here on the other hand. And it just, it, 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 it didn't even compare. And I remember, I remember vividly thinking a few hours later that if someone had said to me at that time that I had two choices, that I could either stay here forever, but I could never go back, and I could never touch any of the things that I owned. All I could have for the rest of my life was what was currently in my backpack, or I could have all of that, but that I would have to leave now. That I remember thinking, literally that same evening, that it wouldn't have even been a question that I would have immediately and instantaneously and unquestionably stayed here with just what was in my backpack. That it was that, that full. About a week later, I finally met Pooja Swamiji. I finally had his darshan. And... When I finally met him, it felt like I had had over the last week so many of these incredible experiences, awakening experiences, you can say, opening experiences, experiences of truth, experiences of divine connection. But none of it made sense. Now, again, that didn't trouble me. I was not disturbed in any way at that moment by the fact that it didn't make sense because I was in such a state of bliss that... Being disturbed was just not even part, there was no room for disturbance. But, but I was aware in the bliss that none of this made any sense. It just was okay that it didn't make sense, but I knew it didn't make sense. And I just, I, I kept saying, oh my God, oh my God, it's so beautiful, and it's so beautiful, and, it's, and that was all I could say. But I knew in my mind in some almost vestigial intellect, that if all I was meant to do was sit on the banks of Ganga and cry ecstatic tears for the rest of my life, 
why would I have been given what I was given? Why would I have gone through the experiences I had gone through? Why, why couldn't God have just sent me here as a, you know, 17-year-old high school dropout hippie? Like, why, why bother going through all of what I had gone through if it was just supposed to be about me and tears of ecstasy? And I also had no idea where was I supposed to be. I mean, I knew it was the banks of Ganga, but was I supposed to just camp out here with a sleeping bag forever? And what was I supposed to do? And, and those thoughts all kind of moved around in my mind for a while. Again, not causing any disturbance, but just causing an awareness that there were all of these unanswered questions. And when I finally had Puja Swamiji's darshan, it was as though his presence was the glue that held and brought all of the other pieces of the experience together, that suddenly all of it made sense. Suddenly, yeah, okay. So this is where I was supposed to be. And this is why I had the background and the experience that I had, and this was who I was supposed to learn under. And so that was, it was an incredible incredible experience and again I've, I've stepped over and fast forwarded through a lot of it because otherwise we'd be here till tomorrow morning with just this but circling back to where I began about it being an experience of, of grace a story of grace rather than my story is because the only thing almost 23 years in retrospect, that I can even begin to, to claim any kind of credit for. You know, when people say, oh, you made this great decision. Wow, you know, you, you left those things behind. And it wasn't like that. There was no sense in me at all of having any, any decision to be made. The decision was made for me. The only thing that I get any, any credit for whatsoever is a commitment to truth and an openness to truth that I had had my entire life that created a situation in which there was no going back a situation in which I had to stay because when I had seen the truth, my commitment to truth, and that was, I mean, I had grown up in a home in which you could have committed the worst thing, but if you went and you said, you know, Mom, Dad, I did this, it was okay. But you could have done the smallest, tiniest nothing, and if you lied about it, there was hell to pay. So I was really raised with a truth is the highest. And, I, and it was something that I had really adopted in my own, my own life and lived by truth at all costs, truth at all costs. And so when I had this experience, as crazy as it seemed, and as completely not the package of my life that I had expected, 
I couldn't deny that I had seen what I had seen. I couldn't deny that I had experienced what I experienced. I couldn't deny that this was the truth, even though it was not in the package that I had thought the truth was going to come in. And so it's an experience, a story, of where grace comes in when we're open to it. And that's why I said it becomes everybody's story. Because the plots are different. The characters in each of our dramas different. The scripts are different. The sets are different. But that experience of grace is available to all. And the only thing that I did was I stayed open to it. That I had, I, I had a faith in grace that was enough to overpower fear of not doing what I was supposed to do. Otherwise, that's what keeps so many of us from, from living grace, is we think, oh my God, this isn't what I'm supposed to do. Here's what my life is supposed to look like. And we, we live in those boxes of somebody else's supposed to. Not our supposed to. Not our dharma. Not our drama. Not our story. But somebody else's supposed to. And we live in that. And what I had was an openness to faith of the, the truth and the power of truth that it overpowered any fear of not doing what I was supposed to do. And for that, I will always be grateful because otherwise it would have been so easy to just say, oh, that was so beautiful, that was so great, and, you know, I'll come back on my summer holidays. But I knew, I knew that I had seen truth. And every one of us, is invited. Every one of us is more than invited, is encouraged to open ourselves to that truth of the universe, to open ourselves to that grace. People say, oh, I wish that I had grace in my life. But grace is there. You know, Pooja Swamiji always talks about the sun is shining. But if we're in a room and the curtains are drawn, we don't experience it. But the answer isn't sitting in the room praying for the sun, doing sun pujas and sun salutations and whatnot. But the answer is opening the curtains. And for me, it really was about staying so true to what I knew to be true. And I had no idea where it was going to take me. I had no idea I was supposed to be here forever. I just knew I was supposed to be here now. And as now, one minute became the next moment, as the next, people, you know, people would say to me from the beginning, they'd say, well, so do you think you're going to, you know, how long do you think you're going to be here? What do you think you're going to do? And I remember saying, and I still say it, although I don't get asked that very frequently anymore, but that I used to have plans for my life. 
but that God was running my life so much better than I had ever run it, so much better than any of my planning had ever brought me to, that for me to take my life out of God's hands and back into mine would be foolish. Because God was doing a much better job than I had. And the other, the other piece of it is in the world that I come from, in the world that many of us come from, we're really taught that a successful life is about how much you can bring towards you. Whether it's possessions, whether it's people, whether it's titles, whether it's acclaim, whether it's wealth, whether it's, you know, social standing, whatever, whatever it may be, popularity, beauty, whatever we may be looking for. But we're really taught that the goal of life is how much can I bring toward me? And the problem with that is it, it focuses us in the wrong direction. It focuses us to think about what can I get rather than to think about what can I give. And it focuses us to think about what do I not have rather than what do I have. And even deeper, who I am. And so even though we may not necessarily get everything we want, I may not necessarily be as rich or as popular or as titled as I, in my wildest fantasies, may envision. But what I've gotten is a fast-track certification in not-enoughness. And no matter how much I get, it's never enough. Because that has become my reality. My, my habit, my way of being has become wanting more, wanting more, wanting more. And so not only is it, does it drain my time and my energy and my pocketbook, but it actually roots me in a, a way of moving through the world, a sanskara, a neural network of not enoughness. And that ensures that no matter what I have, it's never going to be enough. And I may get to a point where I'm rich enough, but then I'm not beautiful enough, or I don't have enough friends, or I'm not popular enough, or I'm not doing enough for other people, or I'm not giving enough, or I'm not, you know, whatever it may be, that pattern is still the same. It's still not enough. You at the core of who you are is not enough. And we spend our lives like that. And what, what being in India has taught me is that the enoughness comes not from anything outside, not from what you do, not from what you own, not from who you know, but it comes from connecting to the part of you that has never been anything other than enough, that was never divided, that was never broken, that doesn't need to be fixed, that was never injured and never needs to be healed, that's not half and looking for its other half, 
but it connects you with the part of you that is truly overflowing. And that's the abundance. When we talk about praying to Lakshmiji, Right? We do, you know, in, in, in India, so many people pray to Lakshmi, right? Mahalakshmi, this is, this is Diwali. Our, our biggest festival is that we pray to Lakshmi. Well, if you talk to most people about what Lakshmi symbolizes, it's abundance and prosperity, but we, we tend to think of it as what I'm going to get, wealth. But talk to anyone who's rich, from mildly rich to incredibly rich. It doesn't matter where on the spectrum they are. It's never enough. And if it's enough money, well, then it's not enough something else. There's never enough when I'm looking outside. And the truth is, what Lakshmiji is the symbol of, Really what connection to the mother goddess energy gives us is a connection to the experience of abundance within ourself. Lakshmiji is not the goddess who fills your wallet or your piggy bank. She's the goddess who connects you to the fullness of yourself. That's, that's the mother. That's the mother energy. And so that experience of abundance is an experience within the self. And this is what Indian spiritual tradition is all about. And I had the blessing of noticing it in the beginning. And I remember looking around and seeing children who had nothing, kids without shoes, who were just exuberantly happy, kids who were the same thing every single day. And they were so happy. And I thought back to the kids I had grown up with. And we never had that. I mean, it wasn't that we were never happy. Yeah, you'd have a great birthday party. We were happy. Take us to the park. We were happy. Feed us ice cream. We were happy. But that sense of I have nothing, but I'm happy and I want nothing, is something that from the very beginning I remember saying, there is a secret here in India, and I need to stay back until I figure out what it is. And it's a secret that infuses the children. It's a secret that infuses village women. Look at these women carrying, you know, pounds of firewood on their head. Walk through the mountains. See these women in the mountains carrying pounds of firewood on their head. And you say to them, how are you? And they say, bas, bhagwan ki krupa. It's, it's God's grace. And you see them sometimes, you'll see them stopped by the side. They, they usually go out in groups of three or four, and they'll be stopped. Maybe they're tying their bundles together. And they're laughing with each other. They're smiling. You think, my God, if I had to walk five kilometers or more, with firewood strapped to my head, I wouldn't be smiling. If I had just spent my day with a machete cutting branches off of trees to go home, and when I know that what's waiting for me 
is to cook the family meal and then to clean up the family meal and then to do whatever else I need to do, I wouldn't be smiling. But the secret of these women is the secret of this culture, which is it has nothing to do with that. They're not smiling because of their life situation. They're smiling because the source of joy has nothing to do with their life situation. And that's something that so many of us who have good life situations have forgotten. We keep thinking, oh, if I just could tweak that, if just my kids would clean up their rooms for God's sakes, if just, you know, my husband this, or my wife that, or my mother-in-law this, or the traffic that, or my weight this, would just change how I want it to change, then everything would be perfect. And we, we forget that actually the inner situation, what we call the swastiti, is actually not determined by the external situation, paristiti. But that's how most of us live. Paristiti ki sabse. Jase paristiti he vase mira swastiti. Paristiti is good, things are good outside, people are being nice to me, they're doing what I want. I'm great. It's a sunny day. We had a picnic. I'm great. But when paristhiti is not according to what I want, people are not doing what I want, the world is not dancing according to my tune, my picnic got rained out, my swastiti is not so good. But I am determined to change the paristhiti so that my swastiti can be okay. And that's going about it completely backwards. And so what, what India really taught me was, wow, if these people can be so grounded, clearly it has nothing to do with getting all the 50 items on your Christmas list. Clearly it has nothing to do with the house you live in, the cars you drive, the parties you get invited to. Clearly it has to do with something inside. And I knew, I saw that, and I thought, this is a secret I need to find.